And so we have been studying Colossians for nine weeks, and today is the second to the last um, message in this series. And I, and I want to say this. In the beginning, Paul started us out in the first chapter of Colossians about as high as he could get us. We were all the way up in heaven. We were all the way up in space with the stars and the planets. And Paul describes for us this cosmic Christ who created all things through him and to him and for him. And he's holding all things together. And then Paul brings it down a little bit and he gives us a real clear definition of the gospel and the cross. Specifically that the gospel is good news. It's news about something that Jesus did for you. And when you hear the news and say, he did that for me, and you respond to it, you get new life. And Paul says, you, were di you died with Christ, you were resurrected to a new life with Christ. And then Paul gets down a little lower and says, now, if you've been resurrected with Christ, here's three things you need to know. First of all, stop chasing after religion. Religion will not change you. Will has no value in controlling the indulgences of the flesh. You need to stop pursuing shadows, and you need to pursue the substance of those shadows, which is Jesus. Stop pursuing externals, but start pursuing Jesus. And then he says, and if you've been raised with Christ, here are some things you need to put to death. Kill these things in your life, because these things will kill you if you don't. So he says, get rid of these sinful natures in your life. And then last week, we talked about garments that we should put on. We had a fashion show last week and talked about what clothes we should put on that are Christ-like, character, humility, compassion. And then this week, the second to the last week in our series, Paul's going to get about as low as he can go. He's going to get on a ground floor level. He's going to bring it home, if you will. In fact, he's going to bring it home, if you will, if you know what I mean. We're going to talk about the home. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about parenting and children. And we're going to talk about our work. If it doesn't get any more lower and mundane than that, I don't know what does. In fact, I'm just going to be honest with you. I kind of feel like this is a little anticlimactic. You know what I mean? You don't? Personally, for me, I like the Jesus up in the heavens. Ooh, he created space, you know? And we've been, as we've been doing this Colossians series, we've brought mathematics and biology and science and space. We talked about the sun and the DNA. Remember all that? And that was fun for me. And Jesus, woo. He's in it, you know what I mean? He's in your DNA, and he's, he's holding the stars together, and you know how big the sun, in? That was, the sun is? That was exciting for me. And so as I started studying for this, I'm like, we're not talking about wives and children and work? That feels anticlimactic to me. I want to go back up at the space where it's cool and I don't get it, you know? You don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You're right about that. You're right. <laughs> Well, it hit me between the eyes this week when I was studying, and I read this quote from a very famous commentator, um, a scholar. His name's N.T. Wright. He says, if a sense of anticlimax is felt when moving from the sublime picture of worshiping church to the almost mundane instructions of this section, that is perhaps a sign uh -oh, that we have not fully integrated belief and practice. Mm. Can you hear that? And, and Wright goes on to say in the next paragraph that um, in literature alone, whether it be Christian literature or Jew Jewish literature or non-Judeo-Christian literature, like secular liter literature of that time period of the ancient Near East, it was clear that those people in that culture took above everything else their home the most seriously. In other words, if you believed in Yahweh, then Yahweh would transform your home. You'd be a different dad. You'd be a different husband. You'd be a different worker. 
If you believed in the gods of Babylon, then that God would transform your home. But you and I live in a culture, I'm going to say we live in a culture that compartmentalism is, is rampant. We all compartmentalize everything. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, that doesn't necessarily transform your home. In fact, it, I've seen it not transform hardly any homes. And if it does, it might be the very last thing it transforms. So last week when we talked about community and knowing each other and not wearing masks, if there's any place where you can't wear a mask, it's at home. You live at home, your wife knows you, and you can't pretend to be super spiritual in front of her. Believe me, I know. <laughs> your kids know that you're not super dad, right? They know. So Paul's going to get real mundane and talk about home. Now, I want to say this. I think most, every people, every person in the, on, on the planet has the same priorities as for humans. What, what I mean by that is that is this. If you're a Christian, your ultimate priority is Christ, right? Christ comes first. We want to worship Christ. We want to know Christ. We want to commune with Christ and, and be transformed by Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then that's obviously not your first priority. But I think you would agree with the next three priorities, and that is your first priority outside of Christ, if you're a Christian, would be to your spouse, you want to love your wife, you want to love your husband, you want to love your, you know, you want a strong marriage. And then your second priority outside of, no wait, your third priority outside of Christ, or second, I'm, I'm confused already, would be your children, right? Um, you, want, you want to uh, have good children and raise them right and teach them manners. And then your third priority outside of Christ would be your work. And, and, and of course, you know that most people invert these priorities, right? And work comes first and kids may come second, I don't know, and wife comes maybe third. So Paul's it's interesting that he's going to line this out in the same way, marriage, parenting, and work. So before we jump into those three, let's look at the whole text. It's Colossians chapter 3, and I believe it starts at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we split into these three categories, I, I want you to notice this in this text. And don't throw things at me when I say this. Uh, Paul starts off with the weaker vessel, then he moves into the stronger vessel, and then he connects both of those to Christ. For instance, he starts off with the wife, then he gives commands to the husband, and he says, for this is to the Lord. Then he starts off with the children, and he goes to the fathers, and he says, and this is pleasing to the Lord. And then he talks about slaves, and then their masters, and this you work to the Lord. And so tonight, I want to go in that order, and I want to unpack these things. So the first thing we want to talk about is husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I'm going to have to unpack that, I think, um, especially in our culture. Especially that word submit. It's not a fun word. And I'm not a woman, so I don't know how unfun it really is. Now, I want to tell you this. When I do weddings, um, I always use Ephesians chapter 5, which is basically a mirrored um, uh, text of our text that we're reading today. Ephesians 5 says the same thing. Husbands, wives, children, dads, everything. 
And I like to use that text because if you're familiar with that text, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and washes her with the, with the word and purifies her. And then he goes on to say, and this is a mystery that a man and a woman become one flesh. And then Paul says, but I'm not talking about a man and a woman. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And the reason why I like to use that text in a wedding is two reasons. One is I get to express, I think, the most important text for husbands and wives, that your marriage is a living, breathing illustration of the gospel, that God created marriage in Genesis 1 to teach us the gospel before Jesus ever came, that, that you are learning the, the gospel of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then, because every time I do a wedding, I know there are people there who are far from God, and they're there because they got invited to a wedding, and they're expecting some cake. And so I get to preach the mysteries of the gospel to them, get to preach Jesus to them, and then even say your marriage is a reflection of the gospel, whether you know it or not. But then as I stand up and begin the homily and read that passage, wives, submit. I cringe inside because I, you know what I'm going to say, right? I just know that everyone in the room is going to hate me and ignore the rest of what I'm about to say because I said, wives, submit. So before we can even talk about this, I need to unpack what it means to submit. What the Bible means by submission and what the Bible does not mean by submission. In fact, I want to do what it does not mean first. Let's get, this, get that out of the way. It does not mean that the husband is the master of the wife. It does not mean that he's her boss. It doesn't mean that she's the employee and has to do what he says. The Bible is pretty explicit. We're one. A man and a woman become one flesh. In Ephesians 5, it says there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no man, there's no woman. We're equal. So the man is not over the woman. I'll give you an example. If you, would, if you have a Bible and you want to look, I'm, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we'll, we'll look at Genesis chapter 2. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of time. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, I'll start at verse 15, and we'll see what happened with the woman, where this submission thing comes from. And Genesis chapter says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. We're going to get to work in a minute and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you cannot eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, yeah, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And if you know the rest of the story, it says he took it out of the ground and he created the woman and out of the rib and he created the woman and brought it to the man and the man said, whoa, man, and he, created, and he named her woman. But what you need to know is that God says there's not a helper suitable for the man. What does the word helper mean? Well, I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like someone to help out around the house, someone to help out with the kids, maybe, you know, clean and, and do the laundry especially. You know, I, I'm a man and I got real important things to do, big things, and I need someone to help me out with the little things so that I can focus on the big things. Is that kind of what helper sounds like? But let me just tell you this. In the, in the Hebrew, the word helper means helper. And let, me, and, let me, and let me tell you what this means. I did go to seminary. I just don't like to speak Hebrew. <laughs> but, but, but the word helper is used throughout the Old Testament um, to denote certain things. For instance, one of the one times it's to denote Israel, the king of Israel needs help because Babylon is going to kick their tail. So he runs out to another king in another country, and he says, Babylon is way bigger than me. Will you help me? And that king comes along with his army and helps him. So 
he needed help, and he got a helper. In, in Psalms, the word helper, the same word, is used to talk about God, who gives us, he's our helper in our ever-present time of need. So, so you see, the word helper doesn't mean someone who does menial tasks around the house, who's lowly. It actually kind of means the opposite. It means that the man needs some help, and she's capable of helping. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not lowly. It's not underneath my thumb of authority. It's, man, I need help. And let's just be honest, guys. You need help, right? Thank you. Jason, you still need help. Um, when we were single, when guys, just to be honest, when you were single, you did stupid and dumb things, right? And then you married a woman and you realize how smart she is. And she tells you, don't wear that with that. And you're like, well, I've been wearing like that my whole life. I know. <laughs> you know, you can't put this here. You know, I've been putting it here my whole life. Not anymore. You got to put the seat down. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and your, my wife says, honey, don't say that. You think it's funny, but it's not. And I've learned over the years that she's right. When I make those jokes, no one laughs but me. I need help. So it does not mean that the man is over the woman. It means almost the opposite. He needs the woman. He needs some help. So if it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Well, in the Bible, there's this thing that we call headship. Christ is the head of the church. In fact, Paul says that in Colossians chapter 1. We covered it here. He's the head of the church. And so where the head goes, the body follows. And if the body needs something, needs nourishment, it goes to the head and says, head, I'm hurting. I need something. And the head helps. The Bible says that Christ is the husband and the church is his bride. And how does Christ treat the church as its head? It loves her. It cherishes her. It protects her. It purifies her. Nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus the husband whipping the church into submission. You better obey or, you're, or else. You know you have to submit to me. It's the opposite. He gives grace. He gives mercy. He gives love. He, he, he purifies her. He he um, fertilizes her. He flourishes her. So I think it's important that we understand headship. And, and I think a helpful way of understanding head, headship, for me at least, is to, is to see it through the lies of responsibility. Let me, let me show you what I mean. If you would go to chapter 3 of Genesis, and we'll be at um, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, you, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the snake, uh, yeah, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree looked good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves some clothes and they heard the sound of the Lord God, verse nine, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Amen. Don't we do this all the time? I hide from God all the time. Like my son when he hides from me and he closes his eyes. <laughs> and the Lord God came out from among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, so here's the question. Who did God call out to? The man. Who sinned? The woman. 
right? The woman was the one who got tempted. The woman was the one who ate the fruit. The woman is the one who gave it to the man. And, and, and I see you nodding, and you're, you're probably saying, it was his fault for not leading, right? Because he's the ultimate responsibility. It's, he's the, ult- the one who's ultimately going to be responsible for what happened. In fact, unfortunately for Adam, he's still held responsible for this today, right? In Romans 5, um, Paul tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one Adam, so death through sin, and so death spread to all men. So thanks to Adam, we're all, you know, unlucky. We're all living in sin. We're all going to die because of Adam's failure to lead his wife. So it's about responsibility, not just authority. We see this in uh, the paradigm of like companies or um, military or uh, you, you fill in, you know, the, the country, right? The, it, that's the difference. A company fails, right? It goes under and all those employees lose their jobs. Whose responsibility is it ultimately? It's the CEO's. Even if it wasn't his fault, maybe his, maybe his employees were the one who drew the, the company under, but he's the one who's going to be responsible for all those people losing their jobs. Or in the military, let's say, a pol- correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, if a platoon makes a mistake, does something illegal, it's the general who's going to get dragged into court, right? It's the general who's going to be questioned, and he's going to say, you want to know the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? And of course, with, with that illustration, it was his fault, but, <laughs> but it's, we're, he's the one to blame. It's about responsibility. So here's what I'm trying to say, and here's what Paul's trying to say, I think. Wives need to submit to your husbands because husbands have responsibility for their wives. Husbands have responsibility for their home. They're the head. And this is not a debate. You can debate it. The world will debate it. Your spouse may debate it. But in the end, you will still be responsible. And you're responsible, as Christ is responsible for the church, for your wife and her growth, her purity, her beauty, her flourishing, It's not that you are her employer and you tell her what to do. It's that you're responsible for her growth. Hey, husbands, is your wife flourishing? Notice I didn't ask, is she submitting? Is she flourishing? Because that's your job. Your responsibility is so, so that your wife will flourish, just as Christ's responsibility is that the bride of Christ, the church, will flourish. Now, because... um. Because the man is the ultimate responsibility and the head of his wife, I think the, the root of our discussion right now should be the man should be in the hot seat. That's what I think. Because it's his responsibility. The man could kick his wife, say, you hear that? You need to submit to me. It's not going to work, really. <laughs> the man is the one responsible. And so what I want to do is this. I want to have three minutes of discussion time where the man, the husband, asks his wife four questions. Now, I, I thought about this already because I know that everyone here is not married, and if you are, your, your spouse might not be with you. She might be in the nursery or she might be gone um, for the day. Uh, but so what I would like for you to do is just, if you're a husband, lean over to your wife, ask these four questions. If, you're, if, you're, if your spouse isn't here, write them down. Have, have him ask you later. And if you're single um, and you don't have a spouse, then come join me just for this one discussion question, and we'll talk about, you know, single stuff, I guess, um, about this. And, and here's the way I think this is going to work. The husband's going to lean over to the wife, and he's going to ask the first question. So, you know, he's going to whisper it real softly, right, because we don't want the other people to be able to hear. And she's going to answer the question, and she's not probably going to answer it to the fool that she wants to because she's worried that the table behind her is listening, right, because women always are listening to conversations at the other table. Did you know this? 
And then when you get in the car, if I, if I were you husbands, I would ask the question again and see if she gives you a different answer. So let's take three minutes, ask these questions. If you're single and you want to play along, come over here to me with the single people. Well, we're going to move away from marriage now. So if you're feeling awkward, single girls, we're going to move right into something more important like child raising. <laughs> so let's talk about child raising. Um, this, this next text, Paul says, and it's real simple, there's two lines. Children, obey your parents, for it pleases the Lord. And husbands, do or fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And, and, and I think this might be the most critical um, connection for us as Missy O'Day because our demographic is full of young couples with young kids and young, couples who, young kids who are about to become young couples with young kids. And so this is important. And here's what I think about child um, development or child parenting. I'm really excited about the fact that child parenting, I just made up a word, um, <laughs> parenting. I'm really excited about the fact that in our culture, it's cool and trendy for dads to change diapers and to, and to read books and to be involved in their kids' growth. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's not always been that way, right? Fathers are really engaged. Whenever we had our first baby, so many people gave me so many books like, you know, Parenting for Dummies and, you know, <laughs> Worst Case Scenarios for Dads. And those were fun books. Did you ever read those books? Oh, it's like talking about how to build a bottle while you're on an airplane and it's going down. It's a fun book because you need to give your kid the bottle before the plane goes down. <clears throat> what I want to do, <laughs> see, sometimes I need my wife here. I need the, you know, I need the filter. What, what I want to do is just kind of jump over the parent, the, the children thing because of our demographic. There's not a lot of children in the room. But I, I will just say this. Paul's command is simple. Obey your parents, period. If you're, if you're a child, and all of us are a child to someone, we need to obey our parents. And Paul says in Ephesians, the same, the same text, um, that it's the only command with a promise, that if you obey your parents, it will go well with you, and you'll live long in the land. And so it's just really simple. Just as um, the head of the, of, the, of the marriage is the husband, and he cherishes her and loves her and protects her, the head of a family is the parent. And the parent is there to cherish and to love and to disciple and to discipline their kids. And so if you're a kid, and we all are, you just need to obey your parents. It's as simple as that. So I want to spend a lot of time, though, because I'm a father, on the next part, where Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And this verse has always fascinated me. Like, I love this verse. I think it might be because I don't think my father knew this verse. And, and, and I can imagine, I can bet that most of the guys in the room are kind of nodding saying, yeah, my dad was good at exasperating me. And here's the other interesting thing. This verse gets repeated more than once in the Bible. So this is not something that you would think that Paul would be talking about a lot, right? Like, don't look at pornography, don't lust, you know, love Jesus, you know, spread the gospel. These are things you think Paul would be all about. But he's mentioned this more than once. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Hmm, it's interesting. It must be a common problem. And most guys, I think, would agree. Yeah, yeah, but I was exasperated for sure. <laughs> let, let me give you these two verses side by side. Ours is Colossians 3, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Um, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, here it is in the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible takes the Bible and amplifies it, you know, takes the verbs and gives you all the colors. So, so, Father, do not provoke or irritate or fret your children. Do not be hard on them or harass them, lest they become discouraged and sullen and morose and feel inferior and frustrated. Do not break their spirit. 
And, and another translation says, do not take the wind out of their sails. I was at Best Buy the other day. I was returning something. And it was in the morning. It was like 10 in the morning, right when it opened. And I, and I was running in, just returning and running out. And on my way, and I was on the phone. And, and on my way in, there's this little girl. She's about six years old. She was just wailing and screaming. She was being obnoxious. I'm, I'm assuming she didn't get the toy she wanted. And I could tell she was kind of fake crying because she was walking to the car and opening the door while she was wailing and screaming. And it was so loud. And I made the biggest mistake of my life, I think. I looked at her. And then I looked at the father. And then I looked away. And then I looked again, because when they got in the car, he just went to town on her leg. He just wailed on her. And he was a big guy, and I was just, my heart dropped into my stomach, and I just went straight into the store, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should knock on the window. I didn't know if I should say something to him. And I felt like it might have been my fault, like I might have provoked him by looking, you know, like embarrassed him in some way. And then when I got in the car, I drove home, and I thought, that was exactly the way my dad parented me. If I embarrassed him or got out of line, he knocked me on my face. I don't think he was abusive, but it was borderline. It hurt. It scars. And so I just began to pray, Lord, because I know yet by the grace of God go I, because I am a man, and I was raised that way, and it will only take just a little bit for me to lose control and, and, and punish my kids out of anger. You know what I'm saying? I, I've done it, to be honest with you. I, I've, I've felt guilty after picking Josiah up and throwing him on his bed and say, shut up. You know, and like, here's Pastor Mike just telling his kid to shut up. Fathers, don't exasperate your kids. This is an important rule. And I say it's hard. So how do we um, treat our kids? How do we, how do we train them up in the way that they should go, as, as Paul says, instruct them in the discipline of the Lord without exasperating them? Now, I did youth ministry for almost 20 years, and in my experience, there are two kinds of dads, mostly. There's the, the, the pacifist dad and the perfectionist dad. The pacifist dad always creates in their kids a hunger and a longing for attention from dad. They'll never get enough attention from dad. Now, I'm not a pacifist dad. I, I, I lick all over my kids all the time, and my son says, why do you always say I love you? I'm like, because I do, and I want you to know it. But even still, if I'm at home sitting on my computer, you know, in the boxes here, those kids are bouncing all around my peripheral vision to try to get my attention until eventually they get closer and closer and closer and on my lap. And Jonathan likes to hit the zero button. And Josiah's like, Come on, daddy, daddy. and eventually I know I've got to either close this lid or I'm going to scream at them. And so I need to get out of this work and I need to get on the floor. And I need to wrestle with them and I need to, and to play hide and seek with them or take them outside and spend some time with them and wear them out before I can ever get any work done. It's just, it's a no win situation. But so kids naturally want attention from dad, but a pacifist dad hurts them so much that even as they become adults, they still want dad to know how good they're doing and want their dad's affection. Now, the other extreme is a perfectionist dad, and he always creates in his kids this heart and this desire that they're never going to be good enough. And not just for dad. Like as they become adults, they'll think they're not good enough for their wife. They'll think they're not good enough for their job. They'll think they're not a good enough dad. So, so, so a pacifist dad makes their kids hungry for affection, and a perfection dad makes their kids insecure. What kind of dad are you? Well, I know what kind of dad you want to be, but what kind of dad are you? And I pray for you and for me. I don't, yet by the grace of God, I don't want to be like my dad, and I don't want to be like the other dads, right? I want to be somehow in a healthy middle. I don't even know what that looks like. So how do we do it? I think we do it 
as we do all things through the lens of the gospel. Can I get an amen? And I'm excited about this because there's this whole movement happening in our culture today called grace parenting. Have you heard of this? Have anyone heard of it? You should Google it and look it up. Grace parenting is this new big wave in trendy evangelical parenting. It's going to be like the next baby wise. You know what I'm saying? Which I don't know how I feel about that because if it becomes a cult, it could really, you know how humans just kind of take things and run with them and then ruin them. But I am excited about this because what it says is if, for instance, if we've been taking this whole Colossians and we talked about the gospel being, the gospel's not what you do, but what he's done, right? So it's not do better, try harder, and be gooder. It's he's done good for you. If that's the gospel, if that's the gospel I'm preaching to you, then how do I go home and tell my kids, you need to do better, and you need to do gooder, and you need to try harder? How do I discipline my kids through the gospel and not through behavioral modification? You know, I want to teach them manners, which in the end will just give me external shadows and not the substance of Christ. We'll have, we'll have shadow kids, you know? That'd be weird. Here, here, here's a quote from one of the books that's probably starting this cult. Um, it's called Give Them Grace. Good book. I'm, I'm excited about this. I know I'm saying it's a cult, but I like it. It will be a cult. I just know how evangelicals are. Re- read this with me. Every way we try to make our kids good that isn't rooted in the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is damnable, crushing, despair-breeding, Pharisee-producing law. We won't get the results we want from the law. We'll get either shallow self-righteousness or blazing rebellion or both. We have to remember that the law is given for one reason only, and that's to crush those little kids' self-confidence in order to drive them to Christ. We want our kids to have behavioral modification, right? We want them to have manners. We want them to not be rebellious. But we have to do it in such a way that's gospel-centered because God wants us to not be rebellious, and God wants us to, to be well-mannered, I guess, and, and, and the law doesn't do that for us, right? Paul says in Colossians 2, it has no value in controlling the indulgences of our flesh. So I think, and I'm like really excited about doing this as a church, exploring how we teach and discipline our kids through the gospel. What does that look like? So far for me, it looks like that I have to go into Josiah's room, he's my four-year-old, and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I yelled at you earlier. I I shouldn't have yelled. I was angry. Daddy is sorry. Daddy needs your forgiveness, and Daddy needs Jesus' forgiveness. And to be honest with you, I've done that so many times now. Every time I raise my voice to Josiah, he begins to whimper and say, you need to say you're sorry. (laughs) And then I get to say, no, I do not need to say I'm sorry because I'm your father, and it's my responsibility to protect you and to discipline you and to grow you up into a healthy man. And you weren't listening to me, and I had to raise my voice so that you would listen to me because it's my responsibility to protect you. Or sometimes I get to say, yeah, you're right. I do. I do need to say you're sorry. I'm sorry. I'll do it in a minute, but right now I'm too mad. And then I'll say, I'm sorry. I, I, I need your forgiveness. Daddy's not perfect. I, I never heard that from my dad. You ever hear that from your dad? No? No, no one raised their hand, so I guess that means no. I, I think our kids need to see that. And so how do we teach them the gospel? We exhibit them for, for them. That, that we need forgiveness. One thing I like about this new movement is it leaves a lot of room for forgiveness. It's not one of these books that say, oh, here's the perfect way to raise your kids and we've tried it and it works. It's actually kind of a book that says, yeah, we are horrible at this. <laughs> and we've never seen this model and we will fail. When you want to raise your kids and not exasperate them, you will fail. You will exasperate your kids. You will. Don't do it, but you will. And when you do, you need to run to Jesus. 
And let your kids see you weak at the cross of Christ. Because as we know, when we are weak, he is strong. And that's what a real man does, right? A real man submits to Christ. Uh, I'm learning that parenting is an adult sport, right? But I always feel so childish when I do it. (laughs) And I love what Bill Cosby says. No matter how calmly you try to referee, parenting will eventually produce bizarre behavior. And I'm not talking about the kids. Their behavior is always normal. (laughs) Kids make you do crazy things, guys. I'm telling you. All right, so here's a couple questions I want you to discuss in your uh, small groups. How does the grace that God has shown us completely change the way we parent our kids who need grace? Number two, how does the grace that God has shown us help us in our failures as parents? And I got these questions from that book that I quoted earlier, by the way. And number three, how can you now partner with your children in the gospel In other words, as you are teaching them and discipling them and and disciplining them, it's interesting how disciple and discipline are kind of similar. How do you do that through the gospel? Three minutes. Let's take three minutes. All right, well, so we're going to end with work. And um, this is mundane, right? We're going to talk about work. And let's just read the passage again because it's been a while since we've been there. It says, Bond servants obey everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Um, That's convicting. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord uh, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, Because I have a little time, I want to say this. Um, This passage is talking about slaves, slaves and masters. And so because our church is a church that's specifically our mission is to reach people who are far from God, I feel like I need to just say real quickly something about slavery in the Bible. Because if you're trying to reach people for God at work or at home or in your, or your, in your family or at your neighborhood, um, one of the cards that they always pull out is, well, I can never believe in a God who condones slavery. Have you ever heard this before? And, and, and it's one of their major arguments. And part of the reason why they use it is because, well, it gives them an excuse not to. And the other thing is, is it kind of undercuts the Bible. It makes the Bible sound like it's wrong because it still condones slavery. So I want to say this about that. I'll give you a little ammo when that, when that happens. When the Bible talks about slavery in the ancient Near East, um, slavery there is completely different than the slavery we saw in this country and in the civil rights movement. Slavery in the ancient Near East was about getting out of debt. So you would sell yourself into slavery in order to get out of debt. You might remember Joseph was sold into slavery. Now, he was tricked by his brothers and put in this caravan, but normally you would be sold into slavery to get out of some debt. And then there were all kinds of Jewish rules and codes around that slave to protect him for for humanity, Like, like his humanity was protected There was years of jubilee in which you would just have to let the slaves go. They they were protected individuals. So slavery in the Bible is completely different than slavery in America. And so when the Bible doesn't seem to speak harshly about slavery, or when the Bible doesn't seem to um, say, no, slavery is evil, it's because slavery then was different than it is today. But we believe that the Bible is true for all people, for all places, and for all times. So how do we contextualize this passage for us people and us place and us time? And I think you would agree it's pretty easy to contextualize this text, right? It's about employees and employers. Employees work heartily unto the Lord, not for eye service of your employer, but do it for Jesus. And if you're an employer, be careful how you treat your people because you have a master in heaven too, and he sees what you do and how you treat them. So it's pretty easy. So let's talk about work. 
we have a destiny that we have been called to work. We, we have been given the mandate by God to work. Work is something that's a, a privilege for us. The Bible says that we are image bearers, meaning we bear the image of God. And that means we bear his image by working just as he works. And, and we create just as he creates. And we fix just as he fixes. And I want to add this as well. We rest just as he rests. Can I get an amen on that? Work is a spiritual thing. And when we do it, we are glorifying God. Did you know that? Do you see your work as worship? Do you see your work as a means of glorifying God? And if you don't, it's probably because you've been taught a false theology of work. Did you know that in the School of Theology, there's a whole section entitled The Theology of Work? It's true. There's a bunch of stuff about the theology of work. Google it. You'll see. Let me tell you where all that theology comes from. It comes from Genesis, right? Let's go back to Genesis again. It says that the Lord God took the man. So after he created the whole garden, he took the man, he put him in the garden, and he says, work it and keep it. The Hebrew word for work is work, and the Hebrew word for keep I don't, is shamar. It's shamar. And it literally means to watch over, to protect, and to cultivate. So God put Adam in the garden and said, I want you to work it, and I want you to protect it, and I want you to, to watch over it, and I want you to cultivate it. I want you to prune the limbs, and I want you to pick the fruit, except for one fruit, right? And it's important for me to tell you that all this was before the fall. So, so work is a spiritual thing. Work itself is a spiritual thing. And glorifying God in the marketplace, I want you to hear this, goes far beyond witnessing to your coworkers or hosting a Bible study over lunch. Jim, I know you do this, and I think it's awesome. But, but this theologian, Bob Thune, and his work is called, he wrote a six-page paper entitled A Theology of Work. I've put it on our website. If you just go to Supreme, go to this, go to this message, you can download it and read it. I think it will encourage you in your workplace. The theology of work says it goes beyond just seeing your workplace as a place where you can redeem it by sharing the gospel or by hosting these Bible studies. It really is already redeemed. It, you, you've been called by God to work at this place, and it is worship. This, this work that God gave us is, is before the fall. So work is not our curse. We had it before the fall. Work is a calling. In fact, the word vocation comes from the Latin word voca, which literally means to call. So whatever your vocation is, it is your calling. Now, when I grew up, I, I kind of felt like the only people who had a calling were missionaries and pastors, right? But, but my wife's an art teacher, and it's clearly her calling. If you're a good carpenter, that's your calling. God has called you to work with your hands, and the work that you do glorifies him and worships him. It's not like vocational ministry is the only place where, you, where real work is done, that's ridiculous. But that is kind of what I heard growing up, and that's kind of the way I felt. Maybe you have too. If you're a blue-collar laborer or a brain surgeon, you've been, I said surgeon, I don't know what that is, <laughs> or a brain surgeon, you've been called by God to do those things with your hands, and it is your act of worship to him. Here's another quote. I love this quote from the same guy. You see, most non-Christians see work simply as a means to an end. It provides beer money and a fat retirement pension or a better life for my kids. And unfortunately, many Christians see work in exactly the same way. Perhaps we're, we're, we're pursuing holier ends, you know, like money to tithe or an opportunity to, you know, invite our friends and coworkers to church, for instance. But our view of work itself is still fundamentally unchanged. We are still using work as a means to an end. 
We are putting up with work for what it gets us. So God may be glorified in the ends, but he's, not, but he's neglected in the means. He is honored in the result of our work, but he is not supreme in our view of work itself. This might revolutionize the way we see our work. We, we, we have a responsibility to work, and it glorifies God. Now, I need to say this, because it happened before the curse, right? Before the curse, this is our job. But I need to tell you that there has been a curse, right? So work is not our curse, but your work is cursed. <laughs> and that's important for you to hear, because I don't want you to hear me saying, now go, therefore, into your workplace, skipping and whistling and working with a big old smile on your face, all to the glory of God. Amen. Because that's completely unrealistic and sickening, right? You're not going to be able to do that. Your work has been cursed. And here's, here's where it happens. In, in, in Genesis 3, God says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Man, that, does that make you want to skip along and sing at your job place? Essentially, God is saying, you're going to work your fingers to the bone until you die. And I don't have to preach this, right? You know it already. You may be looking forward to retirement, but guess what? Your house is still going to fall apart, and you're still going to have to fix it. And there's still going to be weeds in your garden that you're going to have to yank out, and it hurts sometimes. I've got weed cut. You ever get weed cut? You know, never mind. You, you're going to have to work until you die. So what does that mean? If we've been called to our work and our work glorifies God, we go into our workplace knowing it is going to be hard. People are going to be mean, and it is not always going to be fun, but it still is my calling to worship God with. Whatever you do, Paul says, work heartedly as for the Lord. It doesn't matter if it's painful. It doesn't matter if it's, you don't want to get up in the morning. You do it for the Lord, not as a means to an end so you can get more stuff, not a means to an end so you can have more protection, not as a means to an end so you can keep your job and you, know, you won't lose your wife. You, you do it for the Lord. Man, that's cool. If you are inspired by this, raise your hand if you've never heard about the theology of work. Okay, cool, good. I'm glad some people may, are maybe learned something today. I think it blows my mind, and it could revolutionize the way you do anything and everything. And if you're interested, read that article. It's, it's on our website, or just Google Bob Thune. You'll find it. Um, so I'll have a discussion, a question, and that is this. How will the theology of work change the way you work, and how will you apply that this next week? Three minutes, real quickly. Well, um, I want to conclude for the sake of time so that we can have communion together. Um, and I, I want to conclude by saying this. I, I, I think that Paul ends this with the way we should end it, which is pointing it back to Christ, right? So how do you love your wife? You love your wife like Christ loves the church. How do you parent your kids? You father your kids like Christ is the father to you and gives grace to you. How do you work? You work to the Lord, who's also a worker and who creates and who fixes. And I imagine that tonight, a lot of you probably nodded. Maybe I said something, you know, and you nodded your head. Yep, yes, sir, preacher, preach it. That's good. It was right on. My, my wife needs to submit, you know. My kids need to obey. Keep preaching that one, preacher. And maybe the wife said, yes, my husband did need to hear that about exasperating. He did on the way here. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, ha, 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 you're nodding your head. But then I imagine most of the time, probably 100% of us in the room, 
nod our head the other way. Where our head was down, we're like, I need to be a better father. I need to be a better, I, I have a crummy attitude at work. I'm not a good, I'm submitting wife. I'm not a good husband. And that's why we need to go back to Christ. Because it's all really about Jesus, and he knows that you're a failure, right? The Bible says that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He loves you. And he, ultimately, is the head of all that's going on in your world anyway. He's the head with the capital H, and us men are heads with the lowercase h. And so ultimately, he's in charge. Let me say it this way. Even if you had a perfect life, right? Let's say you had the husbands, you had the perfect wife. She was Miss Proverbs 31. You know what I mean? Or, or maybe your kids are just wonderful and they all want to grow up and be missionaries. Aren't you lucky? And then maybe you just love your job so much you don't even need coffee in the morning because you just drive to work eager because you know you're going to get all the compliments for all the work you've done. And you just, you just, that just gives you energy and you know your work is going to have lasting value for thousands of generations to come. And so you just love your life. Can I just say this? Don't be fooled into thinking that you created that. You did not. He created that. He holds all things together. So, and we'll talk about this next week. Give, or not next week, the week after. Give thanks to God. If you've got a Proverbs 31 woman, if you've got kids who want to grow up and be missionaries, or if you've got the best job in the universe, give thanks to God. Because he's the one holding it together, not you. You're going to mess it up if you don't watch out. But for the rest of us, the normal people, <laughs> our kids are rebellious, our job sucks, and our wife sometimes does not submit. Don't forget. <laughs> I hope I didn't say something wrong. Um, <laughs> don't forget. He's the head that holds all things together. And so you can pursue the shadows and work at it all you want to make it, to hold it good, you know, to be a better dad, to be a better husband, to be a better worker. But in the end, that's not going to work anyway. You need Jesus. You need Jesus to be your head. The only way you're going to be a good head is if you commune with the head who is Christ. And so what I'd like to do in the next 15 minutes is, as the band comes up and leads us in singing, um, there's communion here, and, and you can participate it as a couple, as a family, as a single person. If you're a couple and you want to do it singly because you have to confess some sins, that's fine too. And the way we do it here is you just walk up as you feel led. There are some, There is some bread in the basket. Pick up pieces you want it, dip it in the bread, flip it up like this so the bread doesn't drip all over this carpet because it's not our carpet, and then eat it, and then pray. The Bible says that we should confess our sins, that we need to uh, judge our bodies rightly, not because we're not forgiven, but because we are, and we need to confess those things that are forgiven, lest we think God doesn't know. He knows. And so my encouragement to you is to pray, to take communion as we sing these songs. Would you pray with me now? Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you have given me so much grace because I am scared to death. My worst fear is that I would be a bad dad. I want to be a good dad to my kids. I want my kids to know Jesus. I want my kids to know that God came to this earth and died for them. And I want my boys to know that I would die for them. I want my wife to know that she is loved. I want her to think, I've got the best husband who loves me and flourishes me. I'm horrible at that. Uh, and I don't... I don't know how to talk about my job because I'm a pastor, but I'm, I'm sure I'm horrible at that too. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I imagine every one of us in this room could say the same things. And so we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your hand to help us be our helper. 
so that we can be better parents and, and better spouses and better workers and better managers, but not so that we can be better. Because if you wanted us to be better, you could have made us better. It's so that we could give you glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us to give you glory in all that we do in our home. That this theory of the gospel, that these philosophies, these theologies of who Christ is and, and what we have in Christ meets us at home and transforms our home. Pray, Lord, that as we confess our sins to you, as we remember that you died for our sins, that you would transform our homes. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.